privilege. We thank you for the privilege and honor to be in, um, to fellowship together and to be in your midst, oh God. We thank you that we have the opportunity to study your word as a people, as a body. We are very grateful for the revelation that will pour out from the mouth of your servants this evening. We pray that our eyes are open as well to understand what is going to be passed across in the message in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you for our hearts are open to receive your word and it bears much fruit in the name of Jesus Christ. And we pray for everyone who is supposed to be in Bible study this evening, that wherever they might be, Father, Lord, send your angels to bring them. And if there may be any challenges they might be facing with joining in, that every crew path is made straight and that every obstacle is removed from their path in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So you're welcome once again, Idari. You're welcome, everybody. You're welcome to Bible study. So I'm going to just hand it over to our host, our real host, <laughs> Mr. Victor Agape. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. I hope we had a wonderful week. All right. Um, we're just going to go right in uh, today. Uh, again, apologies if anyone, especially for those of us on Mixlr or anyone who might have tried joining us but found it difficult some minutes ago. All right, uh, so that has been sorted. And one more time, welcome, and God bless you. All right, last week was our prayer meeting, and I do hope that we um, took the prayer points, you know, we took them back and we also prayed them again. Um, and the week before that was, uh, it was the last teaching session we had where we looked at still on the topic of um, the seven signs of a healthy spirit. All right, we looked at how, how fellowship with believers is important. And then we also looked at the importance of a heart of gratitude. All right. And that was, that was the fourth sign. So we looked at sign three and four uh, two weeks ago. And then today we are going to look at, uh, we're going to continue from, from where we stopped. All right. We mentioned seven signs. So let's see how much more we can cover today. And I want us to start off right away with the fifth sign, which is, so remember just for context, again, we're talking about seven signs of a healthy spirit. The same way you go to the hospital and they can tell, let's say if you're your mother, you take your child to the hospital, the doctor looks for certain signs to see that your child is healthy. Or you as an adult, you go for a medical checkup, all right? Say you have a quarterly checkup or annually checkup, you go there, and the doctor takes, does some tests. Um, he runs the test through their system and all of that. The, S, the aim of the test is to show your condition, whether you're healthy or you're not healthy. And if you are healthy, fantastic. You keep on doing what you're doing. But if you're not healthy, then the doctor encourages you to either change your diet, change your habits, take some medication. Uh, depending on the severity of the situation, he can put you on on bed rest or whatever it is, he, he essentially admits uh, you into some medical procedure to make sure you're back in shape. So all we've been looking at are things and ways you can test yourself, all right, and check your life to see if you're spiritually healthy or not. And we started off by, by sharing, and this was about four weeks ago when we started this, we started off by sharing how that the Bible says if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. Meaning if we put ourselves 
through the test, we would not wait for an external judgment to come upon us. And yes, God can actually judge us, all right? And his judgment is to make sure we don't fall into the condemnation of the world. So we looked at all of that, all right? So in the light of that, we start considering several things, all right? Starting from the first one till the fifth one we are on now. I would encourage you to please get the, um, the podcast where we have the recordings of everything uh, that we've looked at so far. It's uh, on our podcast. Our podcast, um, you can access it by this short link, bit.ly forward slash BCC podcast. All right, and you get that. So let's go right in. Number five, number five sign we're looking at is yielded. So a yielded, a, a healthy spirit is yielded and submitted to God, okay? I was going to say, tell your neighbor this. But yeah, if you have someone in the space where you are, tell them a yielded spirit is submitted, sorry, a healthy spirit is yielded and submitted to God, okay? A healthy spirit is yielded and submitted to God. And what this essentially means is the if, you're, if you are in a healthy spiritual state, the instructions of God, the directions of God, the corrections of God, you'll be yielded to them, all right? And I want us to look at in, in a couple of verses, right, see why this is important and how this is really significant. Now, this overlaps with what we talked about. Um, I think this was three weeks ago where we talked about, or four weeks ago, yeah, three weeks ago, I believe, where we talked about um, you being quick to repent, okay, uh, which was the second thing we 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 looked at, all right, and it overlaps with some of the other things we have discussed and we will discuss, but I thought it important to, to isolate this, that a, a, a healthy spirit is yielded to God, is submitted to God, and it's very interesting how even in Christianity currently, or let, let me say in modern Christianity, it's interesting how we have or we are subtly accepting a version of Christianity that professes Christianity, but doesn't show the yieldedness that comes with Christianity. And the truth is, this is not, yielding to God is not going to be a comfortable um, experience. I don't even expect it to be, especially at the beginning stages, right? You can train yourself to begin to live a life of yieldedness to God, but especially when you start off, it will not be an easy um, experience. It will not be the funniest thing you have, your body would feel, okay? And you need to compel yourself. In fact, the Bible says that the spirit desires what is contrary to the flesh. The flesh desires what, he, what is contrary to the spirit. And these two are always at war. So there will never be a time where your flesh, right, will desire what the spirit wants. You will always have to tame, tame your flesh to submit to the spirit of God, submit to the desires of the Holy Spirit through you. So a healthy spirit, right? A person whose work with God is healthy would constantly be in that motion of yieldedness and yieldedness come in different forms, all right? What God would demand for you, for, for you to yield to him or for you to submit to him may differ from time to time and may even differ from you and me. But on a baseline level, the scripture reveals to us what we, how we must be yielded. Okay, so you cannot say you are yielded to God and um, you are you are engaging in you know fornication. It's obviously clear in the Word of God. So I'm saying there are baseline things that the Bible already requires us to yield. 
okay? And on top of that, an added layer, God may come into your life. So building on the things that the Bible already requires us to submit or to yield to him, building on top of that, God may now request something specific of your life at a particular season. So he may come to Brother Silas and say, oh, for this season, I want you to yield or I want you to give me every 6 p.m. of your time. Okay, I want to spend that time with me. Or he may come to Sister Layode and say, you know what? I see that they just made an, I mean, they just increased your salary. Maybe they promoted you at work. And God says, for the next six months, I want you to pay, give me 30% of your salary. Or God may not even give you a timeline. He may just come and say indefinitely, give me 30% of your salary. So those are specific instructions that will require us to be submitted to God on. And a healthy, a sign of the sign of a healthy spirit is that you submit to God in those areas. And like I said, every single time we have to submit, it requires death on our parts. It requires it, it's the process is akin to dying again. Okay, and we're going to look at that. But you know what the Bible says, since we're on this talk, talking about death, Jesus Christ himself said in John chapter 12, verse 24, I believe, that except a seed, a corn of wheat falls down, meaning except a seed falls down to the ground and it dies, it will abide alone. So if we don't go through this period process of submission, which is like death, we will never experience multiplication and, and increase, okay? So death, so submission is a sign of a healthy spirit. And let's look at Psalm 51, verse 6 to 7, 16 rather to 17, Psalm 51. Um, Psalm 61, verse, Psalm 51, rather, verse 16 to 17. The, um, the, the man of God, David, in this scripture, he, he brought something very revealing to us. And I just want to read it for us quickly. He said, verse, verse 16 of Psalm 51, Psalm 51, verse 16 says, for you do not desire sac sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Think about this. How would David come up one day and say, God doesn't delight in sacrifice anymore? Like it is, think about that. God is one that instructed, you know, the Levitical priests to offer sacrifices, sacrifice for sin, peace offering, and all of that. And then one day, David comes to a stunning revelation and says, God, I've really looked at you. I've observed you. And I've seen that what you really want is not sacrifice. It's not even, it's not even burnt offering that you want. And this is a very radical statement to make, especially at the time of David, because the temple was still there, the tabernacle was still there, everything was, you know, going on. They had priests and they had they had um, Levites, but David came and said something very radical that God does not really desire burnt offerings or sacrifice. In fact, he said, if it was sacrifice you really desire, I would have given it to you. So David came to a point where he knew that what God wanted was not just sacrifice or bulls or goats or in our case, money or any of those things. That before any of those things and even beyond them, there's something else that God desires that is enough sacrifice for him. And look at the next verse, verse 17. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. This, O oh God, you will not despise. 
what David was bringing as a higher revelation to the revelation of a sacrifice is a broken spirit. A broken spirit here means a spirit that is submitted to God, all right? A spirit that is under God, that no longer has its, its will and its, its desires as its priority. It has been broken before God. That's what we mean by a broken spirit. We don't mean a spirit that is dismayed or that is depressed, no. The broken here in this context refers to a spirit that has submitted itself to God. And David is saying, it is that broken spirit, right? He says a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A contrite heart here, the word contrite here means repent, repent, um, forgive me rather, um, a heart of repentance, a remorseful heart, okay? That is what contrite here means. So a broken spirit and a contrite heart, a heart that is submitted to God, submitted enough to repent, submitted enough to be remorseful at the dealings of God. David says that this heart is the real sacrifice that God is looking for. So even beyond anything we can give to God, any offering or any, or any form of sacrifice we can give to God, David is revealing to us that what God actually is looking for is that broken heart, a heart that is yielded to God, a heart that is submitted to God, a heart that no longer holds its will as its priority, but a heart that has submitted its will, its dispositions, its opinions, and its biases to God. That is a broken spirit. And this is the broken spirit that is of more priority to God than sacrifices, whether burnt offerings, peace offerings, financial offerings, any form of offerings. And this is very insightful. So the, the broken spirit, the yielded spirit, the submitted spirit, okay, is of more importance to God than a, the person that can pray 12 hours a day, but is not submitted to God. And of course, you know, this is not in any way to downplay the importance of prayer. But if you pray and fast, but you are not submitted to God, then your prayer and fasting is of no essence, is of no value to God. And this is what David was saying essentially, that God doesn't value a sacrifice from the person whose heart has not been sacrificed to God. That's what David was saying, that the value of the sacrifices we bring is reliant or hinges largely on the extent to which we have submitted to God. All right? And you know, when you read Genesis chapter 4, I believe, where the Bible talks about um, Cain and Abel offering up sacrifice. The Bible first says that, let, let me read that, because the Bible says God had regard first to Abel and then to his sacrifice. And the Bible then goes on to say that God had no regard for Cain and to his sacrifice. So the first thing you see is the regard for, for the person before the sacrifice comes. Now look at this in Genesis chapter 4, verse... Genesis chapter 4, verse, um, verse 3. Genesis 4, verse 3. I'll just read this quickly. It says, and in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruits of the firstborn of his, sorry, brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Verse 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat. And look at this. The Lord respected Abel and his offering. Um, the Old King James Version says the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, okay? It says, and the Lord had respect, yes, respect unto Abel and to his offering. But for Cain, in verse 5, the Bible says he did not respect Cain 
and his offering. So you see, in, in two in the two instances, the person was put before the offering. So God had respect for Abel and for his offering. God did not have respect for Cain and for his offering. So the first thing God actually looks at is the hearts of the person bringing the sacrifice. So the sacrifice that God accepts is the sacrifice that comes from the first from the person that has first been sacrificed to God. Do you understand that? Let me take that again. That God doesn't value our sacrifices and our offerings as much as he values the disposition of our hearts. So the sacrifices that God accepts and God receives and God values are the sacrifices that come from the heart of a person who is first of all sacrificed to God, who is first of all yielded to God. That is it. And that is the, that is the disposition that God expects of us. That is the heart that God is looking for. And that's what David was, was saying, that you no longer care about sacrifices or, or offerings, or, you know, burnt offerings or sacrifices. I found out that that's not what is important to you. What is really important to you is a broken and a contrite heart. And if we can sustain that disposition, then any other spiritual activities that are offering and every other thing will be accepted in the sight of God. Okay, let's move on. Um, oh, we have a couple of scriptures. Um, okay, I'm just going to read one before I move to the next thing. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Isaiah 57 verse 15. All right. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Don't forget that God first and foremost regards the heart before the offering. So it says, Isaiah 57 verse 15. I, for thus says the Lord, for thus says the high and lofty one. So God is speaking now and he's saying, he's introducing himself as the high and lofty one. He says, who inhabits eternity? This is so vast. God inhabits eternity. You know, God is trying to brag about his bigness, how vast he is, that he occupies eternity. And there is no, there is no length that he, there is no measurement sufficient enough to measure the length and breadth of eternity. But God is saying that he occupies all of it. And he says, whose name is holy. Wow. This introduction is very flamboyant. God is coming to introduce himself. Holy means that I exist in a frame of reference that no other person can exist in. Meaning I am so exclusive in my nature that there's no other person that you can compare me to. All right. You can only use me as a point of reference. You cannot use any other person as a point of reference for me. That's what God was saying. I am holy. But look at what he now he says next. He says, I dwell in the, and this is part of his description. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place. Now, the question is, where is that high and holy place? But look at it. He says, with him who has a contrite and a humble spirit. You can just imagine this. God comes with such flamboyant um, expressions of himself. God comes with such, such descriptions of his personality so that you are not in doubt of, of how mighty he is. But then he comes to tell you that I, I dwell in high and mighty places. And you say, yes. He says, I could pie the, 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 the whole of eternity. And you say, yes. So if you are trying to look for God, where would you now find God? And God gives a description. He says, I dwell with the person who, who has a contrite and humble spirit. So as mighty as God is, as vast as his, as his presence is, he occupies eternity left to right. As vast as his dwelling is, he still dwells with the person 
that is of a contrite and a humble heart. And this is so amazing that God doesn't dwell, you, God doesn't dwell with kings. You won't, if you are looking for God on earth, you won't go and look for the people that have the biggest palaces or the highest towers or the fattest bank accounts. That's not, a, that's not the indication to find where God dwells. If you want to see the person that God dwells with, all right, look for the person that has a contrite and a humble heart. Look for the person who is submitted to God. Look for the person who has relegated his will and his opinions to God and submitted it to the feet of God. That is the person that God dwells with. And my prayer is that you are that person in the name of Jesus Christ. And you know, this is so interesting because you can go to a, let, let me use a church just as an example. You can go to a church and you can see people that are, you know, sitting in the front and, and please, I, I don't have anything wrong with people sitting in front. Personally, I love to sit in front, okay? But just as, as an analogy of the kind of, um, to describe the kind of people I'm talking about, you might see people sitting on the front, occupying the high seat, you know, wearing the suit and tie. They are the ones maybe coming to take the announcement or take some aspects of the service. And they have this baritone voice and they have all the Christian um, linguistics and, and cliches to say, but if their hearts are not submitted to God, they are not. They don't. They, they have not captured God yet. And if God was going to come physically into a service and sit beside someone, God will look for the person who has a humble and a contrite heart. And that person may not wear the finest gown, may not wear the nicest shoes, may not own the, may not even own a car to start with. All right. But God comes and sits with those people. And this should inform the way we evaluate people in our lives, not based on the high and mightiness of these people, but based on the humility of their heart and the submission, this sub and how submitted rather they are to God. So this is how God, this is where God dwells. He says he dwells with the contrite and the humble spirit. He says he dwells in a high and a holy place, but that high and holy place can only be accessed by those who have a humble and a contrite heart. So our submission to God gives us access to dimensions of, of God that other people and other experiences cannot, cannot attain, okay? All right, so let, let's move on. I believe that's been said enough. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. I want us to look at something there. Popular scripture um, we have either quoted or read before, but Matthew chapter 26, verse 39 this was the prayer of Jesus Christ. And this reveals, you know, when you say, when you say submitted heart, what, what is a submitted heart? How do you describe a submitted heart? How do you know what a submitted heart looks like? All right. I, I mean, at least if we're going to measure, if we're going to do an inspection, we should know what the standard is. We should know what the yardstick is. Okay. We should know what we're measuring against. And we can then tell what our scores, our score, scores are, right? So I want to see what the definition of a submitted heart is and who is better than Jesus Christ himself to, to, uh, to reveal this to us. So Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And this is how you will know if you are submitted to God or not. Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. It says, he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. So Jesus Christ got to a point where the situation at hand was not something his will 
wanted, desired to go through. What he was about to embark on was not something he, he, he desired, you know, and sometimes God comes to us with instructions that are completely contrary to our, our desires, contrary to what we would want in that instance. You know, he may come to you and say, give this amount of money to somebody. Or he may come to you and say, this person is treating you in this particular matter, manner. All right, go and do this good for that person. And you will cringe on the inside. And you, your flesh doesn't want to do it. In fact, it doesn't even make sense. Even to the in the court of public, popular opinion, it doesn't make sense. But what should our response be? And look at the response of Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. He says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In other words, not what I will, but let your will be done. And that is the reflection and indication of a submitted spirit. So a submitted spirit says, not my will, but your will be done. You know, we're not denying that you would have a desire in that particular instance. We're not desiring, desiring for instance, that you may not want to keep that money for yourself and use it for something you would, you would want or you would love. But we are saying that you take that desire and go back to God and say, I desire to use this money for my personal consumption. But because you have spoken, I will do your will, not my will. And that is the, the definition of a submitted spirit. A submitted spirit or a submitted heart is the heart that chooses to do the will of God even though his will may be contrary, even though what he what you desire may be contrary to what God is directing. So a submitted heart is that heart that still chooses to do God's will even when it is not comfortable, especially when it is not comfortable. And as we walk with God, we will come to the we'll come to several points where God would desire, would you know, prompt us to do things that are not comfortable to our flesh. All right. And we should train our spirits, train our hearts to do so. And usually God will start from what, what I call little things. And then he begins to build up to bigger things. So God may come from start with something. Um, I say maybe a T-shirt in your wardrobe. And God says, oh, give this T-shirt to someone. You love the T-shirt, but you know you give it out. Then maybe tomorrow he comes and says, oh, give this hundred thousand. And you're like, oh, my God, really? And then after some struggle, struggle you do, you give it. And then God comes and says, change, move from your location that you just, you're just really enjoying and move to a different location. And then you obey. Every level of obedience re reflects a higher level of submission that you have yielded yourself to. All right. So submission is, a, is an important part, is a, an important part of, of, of the signs while considering. It's a sign of a healthy spirit. Look at what James chapter 4, verse 7 says. Uh, just I need to move quickly on this because time seems to be flying. James chapter 4, verse 7. James chapter 4 and verse 7. Look at what um, the Bible says. It says, therefore, submit to God. And there are consequences of submitting to God or there are effects of submitting to God and there are consequences of not submitting to God. But he says, submit to God resist the devil and he would flee from you. So our, our resisting the devil is tied to submitting to God. He, there is no point expecting the devil to flee from you when you resist him if you have not submitted to God. 
So the way we say it is that the strength of our authority lies on how much we are submitted to God. The strength of our authority, when we say to the devil, go and he goes, or, or leave here and he, he leaves, all right? The strength of that authority is dependent on how much we have submitted ourselves to God. So how submitted you are determines the level of authority that you operate in. And we can only resist the devil to the extent to which we, we are submitted to God. We can only resist the devil to the extent to which we are submitted to God. So our submission, our submission rather to God um, determines the degree of authority that we would ex execute, excuse me, that would execute and we would operate. This is why it is so important. I remember that part of the, the science of the believer is that they would, you know, cast out demons, right? They would cast out demons and demons would go. But that sign of a believer will not be evident in your life if you are not yet submitted to God, all right? So submission to God is a super important part. And then what is the proof of submission? Someone will ask me, how do I know if I'm submitted to God or not? Okay, can I, if, I mean, if I look at myself right now, what, how do I tell if I'm submitted to God or not? Okay, and that question can, the answer to that question can be found in a parable that Jesus Christ gave in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21 gives us a parable, right? Verse 28 to 31. Verse 28 to 31. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 31. So do look at what Jesus Christ said. Mm, he said, he was given a parable, he says, what do you think? A man has two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go, go walk today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not, all right? But afterward, he regretted it, meaning he thought about it and said, ah, no, I can't be rude to my dad, I will go. Now, verse 30, then he came to the second and said likewise. So the father came to the second son and said the same thing. And the second son answered and said, I will go, sir. Yes, I will go, you know, with exercising. But he did not go. Verse 31, say, ask, poses a question. Which of the two did the will of the father? And the, the people you're speaking to replied and said, the first. Meaning the two sons, you know, like I just read. And the first one, the father said, um, go to my vineyard and do this work for me. And the first son said, no, 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 I'm not going to go. But he thought about it and says, I can't disobey God. Or I can't disobey my father. And then he eventually went. The second one, the father said the same thing. And... He said, yes, I will go. And you know, there are a lot of believers like that. God, let's say they go to church and the message is going on and that message really strikes at their heart and they know God is speaking to them. And they say, yes, Lord, yes, pastor, preach it, I'll do this, you know. And they say, how many of you will commit to, um, let's say, finance, to become your financial partners? And you know your heart, God is speaking to you to be a financial partner for that ministry and god hasn't spoken to you the amount and you say yes i will do it you even stand up maybe go to the front maybe sign a commitment card and say yes but then afterwards this this kind of people don't do it so jesus now is asking who really did the will of the father and the answer is obvious the first one even though the first one first person first son initially did not you know have wasn't excited about it or probably didn't even want to do it but later he submitted and he did it. So the proof of our submission is not how excited we are. 
the proof of our submission is not the gyrations we make or, you know, when the word of God comes. The proof of our submission is our obedience. That is the ultimate proof of our submission to God. So the fact that you're excited when the word of God comes to you is not doesn't mean you are submitted yet. The fact that you even know what God wants you to do doesn't prove that you're submitted to God yet. The proof of our submission is our obedience. And I want to ask you today, is there something God has spoken to you about but you have not obeyed yet? This is, your, this is a sign that you need to go back and revisit it, okay? So the proof of submission is obedience. And guess what? The proof of love is also obedience, meaning the proof that we love God is also obedience. So the proof of submission is obedience. The proof of love is also obedience. And what this means is that God, God has an expectation that if we really love him, if we have drunk of his love, it should compel us to be submitted to him and that will be proven by our obedience to him. Do we get that? So God, God's idea is that he shows us so much love that because of his love, we desire not to, not to serve any other master, to be submitted to him. And the way we submit to him or the way we prove we are submitted to him is by obeying him. Remember, Jesus Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, that many people come and say, Lord, 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 you know, but he says, it's not about that, that says, Lord, that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of his father, or my father in heaven, rather. So doing the will of my father is the real proof. It's not by shouting, Lord, 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 no. It's not by the loudness of, the vo of our voice or how much enthusiasm we show. Enthusiasm, rather, we show. It is the obedience that follows. So somebody may be in church and is listening to the word of God, and other people are screaming, yes. And by the way, I don't have anything against screaming, by the way, just to be clear. But other people may be screaming and saying, yes, pastor, preach it. But this person may just be quiet. And after the message, he goes to implement what God has spoken to him. In the sight of God, that person is the submitted one, not the, you know, excited one. And if you're excited, that, that's absolutely, um, absolutely necessary, all right? And it's important. But I'm saying your excitement should not be the end. It should translate into obedience. So sign, of, sign number five of a healthy spirit is your submission to God. Submission to God, all right? Sign number six, all right, and we are trying to do this in, you know, less than 20 minutes. Sign number six is that a healthy spirit or a healthy heart is free of strife, free of strife, free of animosity, free of um, anger towards people, free of malice, you know, just have a light heart. And I, I said this to, to someone, I said to someone one time that those who God would give the responsibility to carry heavy things in his kingdom must have light hearts, meaning they must, meaning they must be lighthearted. There must be people that are not, that don't hold people um, to their hearts. You know, they don't hold grudges, they don't hold malice. They are free themselves of all those things. The Bible says we should lay aside every weight. Those things are weights that hold our hearts down. And if you, got, if you have those weights on your heart, you can't carry the weight of what God is bringing. So God requires a light heart for him to entrust you with the weighty things that he has for you. Okay, but let's look at scripture. Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. You know, when we look at some things that Jesus Christ said in scripture, they are very radical. They can be, they are very radical. And if you think and sit 
sit with these things, you'll see that the expectation God has for us is higher than what many of us are, are living up to, or many of us even acknowledge. All right, so Matthew chapter, um, chapter 5, we said, yeah, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, 23 and 24, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. It says, this is Jesus Christ speaking, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and they remember that your brother has something against you. Look at what he says. He says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Read the scripture where he says, you're coming to the altar to give a gift, to give a sacrifice. Now, this, this translates in our day and time to any sacrifice, because the altar now is in our hearts, okay? God doesn't dwell in temples anywhere. At the time where Jesus Christ was, was making this statement, there was a physical temple that there was, they still had to go into, all right, because he had not yet died. But now that he had died, he has, he has died and he has resurrected, the altar is not in a physical building. So it's not even just talking about going to church. The altar is in your heart first and foremost. So Jesus Christ here is saying, if you go to present a gift to the altar, all right, so you want to maybe give a sacrificial offering or give to God or in whatever, whatever form or, or, or kind it takes. He says that, and you remember that, ah, there's this brother of mine, there's this friend of mine. And, and when we say brother here, let me just define it. We're not talking about, we're not limiting this rather to your blood brother. We're talking about anybody that you are in fellowship with, you are in a relationship with. It could be your blood brother or your blood sister. It could be a friend. It could be a colleague. It could be someone in your environment. As long as you have a relationship with that person of some sort, okay? The Bible is saying that if you remember that this person is angry at you, so it's not even that you are the one angry at the person, okay? If you are the one angry at the person, you can easily forgive the person from your heart and it ends there. But you remember that this person is angry with you. Look at what Jesus says. He says, forget about that sacrifice you want to give. Leave it. Go and meet that person and recon reconcile with that person. You know what? This is so interesting because the person is angry with you. You're not the one angry with the person. But the person is angry with you. And Jesus is saying, as long as you are aware that the person is angry with you, reconcile with that person first before giving your gifts. And this is a very radical statement, but the interpretation of this is that the state of your relationship with people in your cycle is more important than your spiritual sacrifices. So the state of your relationship with people in your cycle, Jesus is saying it is more important than spiritual sacrifices. So if somebody, if you and your friend have, you know, have an argument or had a fight or you guys, there's friction between both of you, before you go and give us an offering or sacrifice, reconcile with that person. Go and speak to that person first before you give any sacrifice. If you really think about it, do you know that there is a lot of the giving that goes on among believers that, that you know, God is looking at them and says, what are you giving really? You know this person is angry with you. You've not made an attempt to reconcile. And I know, yes, that there are people, there are times where the person may not want to reconcile, right? That leaves, that leaves within your control, okay? But you have to make that effort to reconcile with that person. All right, so Jesus says, leave your gifts there 
before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, to your colleague, to your friend, to whoever that person is, and then come and offer your gift. So like I said, your relationship, the state of your relationship, um, the state of your relationship with people in your cycle, yes, is more important than even offering a sacrifice to God. Look at what Romans chapter 12, verse 17 says. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Romans chapter 12, uh, where are we? Verse 17, yeah. Now, now look at, and this will probably answer a, a question that someone might have had in their heart with the last thing I said. Verse 12, sorry, verse 17 says, repay no evil for evil, have regard for good things in the sight of all men. So don't repay evil for evil. Meaning people will do evil to you, will treat you bad, but don't repay evil for evil. Look at verse 18, and that's my emphasis. If it is possible, as much as it depends on you, it says live peaceably with all men. Wow, this is such a huge responsibility. God is saying, as long as it depends on you, if it is possible, be at peace with all men. And this is why I said that you might go to reconcile with your brother or with that person, and the person might not want to reconcile with you. Okay, so that, at, that, at that point, it is out of your control. But God is saying, as long as it depends on you, meaning if the apology would, if, it, if, if, you, if peace will come by you apologizing, even though you are not at fault, then go and apologize. If it means you forfeiting some profit or something for peace to reign in that relationship, then forfeit it. If it means you not coming on, coming out in public to defend yourself and say all the things, all the secret things about this person, if that would ensure peace will reign, then take that, take that blame. Let let it, let it. In fact, what God is actually saying is, let bear the loss if it will mean peace will reign. All right, and it says as much as it depends on you, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably with all men. And this is all men. So how much more people that are within your own cycle? All right. So the extent, so, and this is what I wrote here. To the extent that it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. And this is one of the signs of a healthy spirit that you don't carry grief. Um, you don't carry strife, I beg your pardon, in your heart. You don't carry offenses in your heart. You don't carry, you know, grievances, malice in your heart. Someone did something to you two years ago, and that thing is still boiling in your heart. Someone did something to you five years ago, and it's still, it's still at the top of your heart. It's, you have never resolved it. No, don't let it go. You know, I, I heard a very interesting story. I was listening to my spiritual father preach a, a, a message, and this was yesterday. I was listening to this message, and then he said, he narrated a story that, you know, was very eye-opening. A, a woman, um, you know, married a man, when she married the man, she was a virgin, uh, but she noticed the man, the man didn't, she didn't have any children. So the man went out, had children with other women and he was hiding it, was hiding it. So after 10 years, she discovered it and she confronted him and said, you know, what are you doing? What is going on? All of that she confronted him and he essentially drove her out of, her, out of his house, sent her away. And that's a very painful thing to experience, very painful. And when she left, she started praying that God would kill this man. She started praying that God would, you know, all the thunder would fire him, let the ground open and swallow him, let accidents happen to him, all those kind of things. 
You know, so she was praying really that God would revenge and, and kill this man. And she prayed that, if I recall properly, for 25 years or 20 something years, if my, my memory doesn't serve me right, but I do believe it's 25 years. So over 20 years, essentially, she prayed this prayer that God would kill this man. And this man did not die. In fact, the more she prayed, the more the man was prospering. And she was seeing the man prosper. And she was saying, God, are you not a God of justice? Kill this man for what he has done. Avenge for me. Fight him. Defeat him. Destroy him. And one day she came to pray and to say, oh, God, kill. And then God says, uh -uh, can't you even forgive him? And this is after 20-something years. And she, she thought about it and said, ah, forgive. I'm sure reluctantly she eventually agreed and she forgave the man. She now said, okay, God, I forgive this man. I forgive this man. And guess what? The moment she forgave the man, the next day or, or soon, shortly after, the man died. So all the prayer of, of God, avenge me. God, kill me, my enemy. God, let fire burn this person. It would have been achieved quickly if, you had, if the woman had forgive, forgiven this man. And this is the same thing too for so many people in our lives. All right. And, and so many people, maybe not you listening to this call, or maybe someone you know, or someone out there, that you need to forgive somebody in your life. Instead of praying for vengeance, let God avenge, let God avenge. Mm -mm. God says, forgive, just forgive. The Bible says, and so God speaking, says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Allow God to determine how he would execute justice and judgment on that matter. Yes, God is a God of justice and judgment. So I'm not saying that bad people would always get away. No, but I'm saying you, as it pertains to you, the Bible says, as long as it depends on you, your own responsibility is to forgive and let go. Yours is to remove the strife from your heart. Allow God to decide how he will execute justice for that person. Think about um, the story of Joseph. You know, I, I'm reading I, I was, I'm reading the book of Genesis currently, and I'm at that, the story of jo Joseph, you're right? And it's a very, very interesting story, okay? Think about this, that number one, Joseph had his brothers, his own brothers, so the same father. He had his brothers betray him, sold him into slavery. That was, Joseph had enough reasons to be angry with his brother. Your blood brothers, that you eat food together, you call the same person father. This, this same boys sold you to slavery. Okay, Joseph continued living his life. At least he got to Egypt. Um, he got to Egypt. God was helping him in the house of Potiphar. He was promoted to the chief of staff in that house. And then the Potiphar's wife came and lied on him and sent him to prison. Now, this is so terrible. And in fact, Potiphar himself didn't even try to ask Joseph what he, to hear Joseph's side of the story. He, there was no room for that. Sent him straight to prison. And then he was in prison for a while. Joseph had a reason to be angry at this man and say, oh God, kill this woman. Oh God, let her not give birth to children. Let her die. Oh my, all my brothers, show them thunder. You know, he had all the reasons to pray such prayers. But look at the way God executed justice. Imagine if Joseph, Joseph was praying all those prayers and that was his definition of judgment, that God should kill his brothers and God should kill Potiphar. Compare that, imagine God answered that prayer. Compare that, answer to the way God eventually executed justice, that God gave justice by elevating Joshua above all the people that offended him, including Potiphar, who was his master. So God elevated Joshua, um, Joseph sorry, to the highest office 
in the land, second only to Pharaoh, and there was no other justice that is greater than that. That the people that, you know, said that sold you to slavery, the people that lied against you eventually became your subjects. So what I'm saying is allow God judge the matter. You just forgive. That's your responsibility. You forgive. Don't bother about how it will happen. God is a God of justice and judgment. He knows how to judge a matter. And whatever the outcome of the judgment is, by the time you look at it, you know that God is actually a just God. Hallelujah. All right. And what I'm, this last thing I said, I want to connect it to a scripture and then we'll just, we'll just um, wrap up here. You know, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 31, Apostle Paul here, you know, said in a phrase there, he said, I die daily. And, and that's the life of a Christian. We die daily. But you see that this death is the death that is, is likened to crucifixion, just like Jesus Christ. Uh, with crucifixion, you know, with someone can commit suicide, all right? You know, God forbid, someone can commit suicide, take drugs or whatever, overdose on things, and then they die. But with crucifixion, you cannot kill yourself. People would have to crucify you. Because even if you say, okay, let me nail my hand, all right? If you say, let me nail my hand to the cross, by the time you nail the first hand to the cross, how will you nail the second hand? You need the to, to you need the second hand to nail the, the other hand, all right? So you cannot crucify yourself. That's what I'm trying to say. It will take people to crucify you. And there's, there's a principle in this I want to bring out. You know, Paul says we die daily. That death is not death that you inflict by yourself. It is death that other people inflict on you. It is crucifixion. So people will crucify you. And what this means is that people will hurt you. The people that you helped, the people that you uh, fed, you, you multiply bread to feed 5,000 for, the people that you raised their sons and daughters and their cousins, the people that you, you spent three nights teaching, those people will eventually betray you. They will come and hurt you. They will crucify you. And what I'm telling you is that people that you love, people that you've helped before, Maybe someone you paid their school fees. Maybe someone you paid their medical bills. It might be someone that you helped at some point in life. Those people can come and, and backstab you. I'm not even saying that they forgot about you. That is, is, is a little minor issue. I'm saying that they come and actively begin to say negative things about you, to stab you in the back and to say all manner of things concerning you, even though you were instrumental to their lives at some point. That is crucifixion. And that kind of thing, like I said, is people that will do it to you. You cannot do it to yourself. It is crucifixion, all right? And people will nail you and they will kill you to the cross, and that's important. And however, the only hope you have of resurrecting, okay, is that you can say on that cross where they have crucified you, you can say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So the person that you helped maybe... This person didn't have a job and they needed money at some point in their life and you helped them get, um, you help them with money and finances. Now they have a job, they're comfortable and they're telling other people that, you know, this boy, he never helped me. Those kind of people in your face, they will say such things to you. They are crucifying you. Your hope of resurrecting, meaning ascending to a higher experience in life is that you can look at them and say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you can release forgiveness to people at that, when these things happen, then you have entered in higher dimension of life, okay? So people would, would, would nail you to the cross, okay? Um, and that moment of crucifixion, God would allow it also to reveal something to you. 
Because God, you know, nobody can, you, crucifixion does not happen without the knowledge of God. So when people are crucifying you, they are backbiting you, they are saying all manner of things to you, God is aware. And God is allowing it to happen so that he can filter certain people from your life, filter them away. So you can know those that truly love you and those that don't. Those that are truly loyal to you and those that are not. Those that are truly, truly have your interests at heart and those that are not. Just the same way at the crucifixion, people were spitting at Jesus and they were, they were saying all manner of things. If you are the Savior, jump down from the cross. You've saved other people. Can you, can't you save yourself? It was only the people, the disciples of Jesus, the, the mother of Jesus, the other disciples that were with Jesus that stayed with him. That's where you, it's the moment of crucifixion that you will know who are truly your people, okay? Those that God has sent in your life. So God will allow people to crucify you. That's what I'm trying to say. Don't be surprised when it happens that somebody backstabbed you or lied against you. Don't be surprised. It is just a period of crucifixion. The catch here is that you must be able to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. All right? And, you know, people will crucify you on a cross that you carry. You know, Jesus Christ carried his cross to Golgotha and it was on that same cross that they crucified him. And what that means is that people will crucify you on a cross that you are carrying. A cross here represents a burden on your life that is that's giving you a, a, a reason to worry, okay, a reason for concern, a burden in your life, a situation that represents a burden. People would use that situation and crucify you on it. So for instance, you know, they told Jesus Christ, physician, you heal others, heal yourself. You, you saved others, save yourself. A time may come in your life where you might be going through a rough time, a turbulent time. People will use that. That turbulent time is, is synonymous with that cross. It's a burdensome situation. It's in those moments that people will use that body to crucify you. They'll use it to see all manner of things. And that's why, you know, like just like Job. Job had a lot of money. Everything was going fine. And then disaster happened. And then people came and he's even, in fact, his friends, right, came and said to him, you must be a sinner. That's why this thing happened to you. That for this kind of calamity to happen, you have offended God. And they really pretty much condemned him. And that's why God was angry at his friends because they could not even discern what was happening. And it's you typically the situation that you might be going through a, a tough period and then people will mock you. People want to condemn you. And fortunate, oh, I mean, unfortunately or fortunately, it is people that you know that usually will have the loudest voice in such situations. I'm telling you this ahead of time so that when it happens, you can tell them, you can say in your heart, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. That is your only hope of resurrection. And remember that that crucifixion, which is a form of, which leads to death, is not death in itself. You know, Jesus Christ said, and I quoted earlier in John chapter John chapter 12, I believe. Let me check that quickly. John chapter 12, verse 24. He says, except a corn of wheat falls to the ground and dies. All right? Yes, John chapter 12, verse 24. Verily, very I say unto you, except a corn of wheat falls into the ground and dies. So that death is necessary. And that's what I'm trying to tell you. He says, except a corn of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. So if you never go through a period of crucifixion where you die, where people that you have helped before look in your face and they say they don't know you, if you've never gone through that process of crucifixion, right, of, of death, you will not be able to bear much fruit in your life. 
And the only way that you can go through that situation and come out victorious is if you can say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because you see, burial and, and, and planting a seed, they look very synonymous, all right? But the difference is that one comes out with fruits while the other one never comes out. So at the point of burial is where you really decide if it is burial or if it is planting. And the way you decide that is by forgiving the people that are crucifying you, forgiving the people that are killing you, the people that are backstabbing you. See, at, that is a Kairos moment. Let me tell you this. And I'm going to wrap up, wrap up right now. But I'm telling you that a Kairos moment in your life is a moment where people that you have helped, people that you know, come and betray you, backstab you, they stab you, crucify you on the cross. That is a Kairos moment. It's a very defining moment. And the outcome of that situation is determined by one thing only, if you are able to forgive them. If you forgive them, then you, you germinate like a plant and you begin to bear fruit. But if you don't forgive them, then that planting would, would become death. You will never resurrect out of it. And there are people who went through difficult situations, situations of betrayal. And I'm not saying this is easy, but I'm just telling you what, what God, how God's system works. There are people who have gone through system, periods of betrayal and they never forgave people. And you find out that they, this, because they didn't forgive people, they, they never increased beyond that level. Because strife in the heart puts a cap on how much you can grow and how much you can manifest in life. So please forgive people. That's what I'm telling us today. Forgive people, especially people you know that have hurt you. Because um, hurt is more painful when it comes from people that you know. If it's an outsider, you can easily just ignore the person and say, I don't even know him, so what is he saying? But when it's somebody you know, you dine together with, you've broken bread together with, and then they backstab you, that is a real test. And that will determine how much you grow in life, how much fruit you grow in life, if you are able to say at that moment, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. All right? Oh, one last scripture. I know I said I'm wrapping up, but just one last scripture. I want to read this in the... Passion translation. I won't. Um, I won't do any explanation, but because it's very self-explanatory. But um, Colossians chapter three, verse thirteen. I want to read this in the Passion translation, and I'll hand over to Emily to uh, wrap up us. Wrap us up, rather. So Colossians chapter three, verse thirteen. The Passion translation. Look at what it says. It says, "Sorry." It says, "Tolerate." the weaknesses of those in the family of faith. Bible says tolerate. Okay, I said I won't explain. Tolerate the weaknesses of those in the family of faith, forgiving one another in the same way you have been graciously forgiven by Jesus Christ. So the same way Jesus forgave you is the way he's expecting to forgive people. That's why I said in that situation, look at them and say, Father, forgive them. Because it's the same way Jesus forgave us. He says, forgive them for they know not what they do. Look at what he says in the last sentence. He says, if you find fault with someone, release this gift of forgiveness to them. And this is what I want to say to us. If you find fault in someone, maybe someone in your inner cycle, maybe a friend or whoever it is, release that same gift of forgiveness to them. And that's my charge for us tonight as we, as we close. Just before I wrap up, I want us to say a word of prayer wherever you are right now. I want you to, in your heart, just begin to say to God, Lord, I forgive this person. Mention the name of that person where you are. I forgive sister A. I forgive brother B. I forgive this my colleague. 
I forgive my, my, my friend, I forgive my parents. For some of us, it might be our parents we need to forgive. For some of us, it might be a friend, it might be your husband or your wife. I want you to just say, God, I forgive this person right now. By your grace, I release this person. I extend the same forgiveness that you have extended to me. I extend it to this person in the name of Jesus Christ. I forgive this person. I want you to pray this quickly in the next 10 seconds where you are. Lord, I forgive. I forgive. I forgive this person. I let this person go. I forgive this person in the name of Jesus Christ. I release this person from my heart. I forgive them. Whatever they've done, I release them and I let it go by your grace in the name of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, we have prayed. And Father, I pray for everyone on this call. I ask that you release the grace in their, into their hearts to forgive people. If there's anyone that is still holding offense or strife for any reason, I ask, oh Lord, that your, your grace empowers them to release that person and let them extend forgiveness in the name of Jesus Christ. Let the weight and the... the Gravity that unforgiveness carries, let it be released from their hearts in the name of Jesus. Father, I thank you. Be praised and be glorified, for in Jesus' name we have prayed. Amen. Amen. Over to you, um, Sister Emily. God bless you, everyone. Thank you so much for that impactful message. God bless you, Mr. Victor. More grace in Jesus' name. So I'm sure that we all enjoyed Bible study today. Um, if you can in the chat, just write one thing that you learned today. Just put it in the chat, something that you learned today. Someone might be reading, someone might not have joined as early as you did or might have missed something that was said. So please write in the chat on Mixer, on Zoom as well. Anything that you learned, just in case someone missed something and just to show that you understood what was taught today. So quickly, I'm just going to um, say the announcement. Um, we are building our database and this was announced last week. So if you're an existing member of our community, um, please fill the form. I'm gonna put the links out. Um, Victor, if you can help me, please put that on Zoom and then I'll just, I'm just gonna post it on Mixer. Okay, um, sure. Yeah, thank you. We also need volunteers for our community as we're expanding, as we're growing, we need volunteers. So please um, fill out the form, the links. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna post the links in the um, chats very soon. And then first timers are very, very special people. So if today is your first time here, please let us know who you are. Let us know who you are. If today is your first time, we, we would love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Victor, I'm trying to post the links in the chat on Mixer, but I'm not able to see that it has gone through. You can help me out. Yes, please, I'll do yeah. that. All right, thank you. So if today is your first time, anybody on Zoom, Anybody on Zoom today, your first time, just let me know. Anybody on Mixer? Do we have any first timers on Mixer? Um, we, I don't know who be prayerful is, but is today your first time? I'm Monsieur Falou. 
um, those are new names to me, but if today's not your first time, that's fine. But if today's your first time, you're very welcome to Borderless Christian Community, and I hope that you were blessed today. Um, please do visit us next time, next week, same time, and we would, um, you'll be glad that you did come and invite somebody. So everybody's here, invite somebody next week, post on your statuses that we are having a good thing here. You know, this message that was preached today is what, you know, we still go and we hear in the church, but it's just that we're able to break things down at Bible study. So if you were blessed today, please invite someone. All right, so I don't see anybody um, indicating that it's their first time on Mixer. So thank you everyone for coming. God bless you. Victor, do you have any last words before we close out? Um, no, not, not really. I'm just trying to post the um, links, um, all of the links. But yeah, just thank you everyone for coming today. Um, God bless you all. We'll continue. We have one more sign we haven't looked at uh, because of time. And we'll look at that next week, all right? So God bless you all. Um, the links will be in the comment section for everyone. All right. Thank you. All right. Good night, everybody.